0: You, uh, if you have, would you open up your Bibles? Perhaps you brought your own from home. Perhaps you have a mobile device that you have access to Scripture uh, or that red pew Bible in front of you. We're going to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And before I read through it, just as a reminder, if you haven't been with us, we're going through the book of Philippians. And before it was called a book, uh, it was a letter written to a group of Christians in a town called Philippi. And actually, it's, it's probably inaccurate to even say that they were called Christians back then. In fact, back then, this was before Christianity was described as Christianity. This is before followers of Jesus were described as Christians. One of the first kind of phrases used to describe those early followers of Jesus was that they were simply, they were part of the way the way of Jesus. It was a way of life. It wasn't a philosophical set of attributes that they could ascribe to. Uh, This was not a religion that was all about what could I do in order to earn God's love. Uh, It wasn't just a, a collection of wise sayings or teaching. This was a way of life. And the Apostle Paul, his way of life had dramatically changed in such a way that it led him to write this letter to the early church. You see, early on, he was a man that lived by the law. He tried to be perfect. He was a good, religious, moral person. He attended uh, worship gatherings, he obeyed the law, and he heard about these, these people that follow Jesus whose righteousness, which literally means just to be approved, by God. He saw them being approved by God and secure in their faith, not because of what they did for God, but because of simply their faith and trust in him, the, the free gift that they had received from God himself. And so he couldn't stand these early followers of Jesus. And so he actually approved of their killing. Jesus shows up in his life meets him on the road to Damascus. This is after his death, burial, and resurrection, after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He shows up to Saul, that was his name at the time, and he has this encounter with him in such a way that he goes blind. He then changes the way that he lived his life, and from then on, he says, I'm all about Jesus. And this letter that he writes from jail, and if you were with us last week, not just in jail, but he was chained to a prison guard is filled with so much joy, so much peace, so much significance that it's so apropos for today. But before I read this way of life that, that the Apostle Paul talks about, which by the way, this, this section of scripture I think is one of my favorite in scripture, which I think I say all the time about almost every passage. You hear me say, that? literally, if, if, this, if this passage, if verses two, chapter two, one through 11 were like a topographical map of the world, In it, you would find the Mariana Trench and Mount Everest. As we go through this short section of Scripture, we plumb the depths and we rise to the heights. And this way of life, in many ways... It gets to the core of what the gospel's all about. It gets to the core of what all 66 books of the Bible are all about. It gets to the core of what the way of Jesus is all about. It gets to the core of what it means to follow Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone. And that way of Jesus always runs in opposition to the ways of the world apart from God. Every culture, every time period has different ways of life that we think will give us significance, peace, joy, happiness, security, all those things. And we live in an era right now, especially in the United States, in 2017, where the way of success is the way that we lift up higher than anything else. We tell young kids in school, you've got to succeed in school. You've got to do well so that you can, what, go to The next school, so that you can get the next job, so that you can succeed. We pay athletes more money if they succeed on their teams. We give more opportunities to actors and actresses if they succeed in their roles. We give new projects to writers and DPs and directors and producers if they succeed in their last project. We are a culture obsessed with succeeding. And yet some of you know that that is... This never-ending, this ongoing, this ever-elusive thing to finally land at. Because once you succeed in one area, there's, there's always something more. There's always somebody else that's just a little bit better. There's always a player or a star or a person or a family or a neighborhood that just has a little bit more and it's this never-ending thing so much so that actually apart from God, our, our culture is beginning to, to question the way of success. There was an article that came out recently in a magazine called Fast Company. Have you heard of that? Put your hands up if you've heard of Fast Company. This is a, it's a very fascinating publication and it was uh, written a few years ago by a very smart woman by the name of Harriet Rubin. And in this article, which was titled Success Excess, she writes, of all the subjects we obsess about, of them all, success is the one we lie about the most. That success and its cousin money will make us secure. That success and its cousin power will make us important. That success and its cousin fame will make us happy. It's time to tell the truth. Why are our generation's smartest, most talented, most successful people flirting with disaster in record numbers? People are using all their means to get money all their means to get power, all their means to get glory, and then they self-destruct. Maybe they didn't want it in the first place, or maybe they didn't like what they saw when they finally achieved it. You see, this way of success about pursuing security, about pursuing power, about pursuing happiness. When we, when we aim for those things and we claw for those things and we try to do everything in our power to get those things, ironically, we can't find them. We end up more insecure. We actually find ourselves feeling less powerful, less in control of life. And actually, our, our happiness level plummets. This way of Jesus is so counter but here's the interesting thing. As you follow the way of Jesus, you will actually, you'll ironically find power and happiness and security. But it's like frequent flyer miles. Now go with me here, frequent flyer miles. You don't get frequent flyer miles just to get frequent flyer miles. So that you can just get more frequent flyer miles so that you can just get more frequent flyer miles just to get 2.2 million frequent, I got a lot of frequent flyer miles, why? Because I got frequent flyer miles. I mean, that'd be crazy, wouldn't it? If I just collected frequent flyer miles just to get frequent flyer miles so I can have it, so I can look on the account and say, I got those frequent flyer miles. Three million, five million. I mean, that'd be crazy, right? Like, we don't don't try to get frequent flyer miles just to have frequent flyer miles. You get my point? You get where I'm going? We get it so that what? We can travel more for less money so that we can have upgrades. The frequent flyer miles are just a byproduct an accumulation over time of the the true thing, which is traveling. You see, the more you fly, the byproduct, if you sign up for a frequent fly mile program, I'm not doing a timeshare thing here, Uh, the more you fly, you will accumulate those things on the side, it just happens. The way of Jesus isn't about pursuing power or significance or happiness, but when you follow Jesus, you accumulate those things and so much more along the way. But it's a byproduct, it's not the point. But all of a sudden, as you follow Jesus, you're gonna find yourself more secure, more confident, filled with more joy, more purpose. Let's take a look at what the Apostle Paul says. Let me finally read this text of scripture, Philippians two, one through 11, one of my favorite of all time, which I'll say next week, it's my favorite of all time, we get there. Apostle Paul writes, verse one of chapter two, if then, Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This, my friends, includes the reading of God's word. All right, keep those Bibles open, keep them on your lap, some of you have pens, pencils, you can take notes. Again, if that's the Bible now that you have now have in your hand, you can write in it. And you can put your name on the front of it. You can underline. Let's just walk through from beginning to end. And as we go on this journey, you'll see how we're going to pick up security. We're going to pick up power. We're going to pick up joy along the way. Verse one, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, and he's going on and on. He's saying, okay, all the things that I've talked about, if you're resonating with all that I wrote in chapter one, then make my joy complete. The apostle Paul cares so much about the early church. He says that actually I'm gonna have more joy in my life if Christ is in yours. And let, before we get it, there, there is so much richness. I could spend 15 years on this passage. I've got 15 more minutes. And even that's going over the time I've been allotted, okay? I could take 15 years in this, Apostle Paul. He says that my joy actually is wound up in seeing you experience the fullness of Christ in your life. And he's saying that I want you to have this unity, to have the same mind, verse 2, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And the Greek word for that is the word homothumadon. Remember that word three years ago? First time I preached from this pulpit, I talked about that word that, that Luke loves, that Paul picks up. It's this, it's this unity. It's a community of people in sync with one another. They're giving their lives to something greater than themselves. They're rowing in the same direction. It's this dynamic energy that comes when everybody is headed in the same direction. In this case, it's following Jesus Christ. And he said, that's what I long for you. That would make my joy complete if you would experience unity, if you would all be able to do that together and to experience that together. But then he goes to verse 3 and says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now let's pause there. This is the thing that undermines unity. This fractures homothumadon. If you want to quickly dismantle what God can do through a church, do these two things. Selfish ambition or conceit. And in the grammar, in the Greek language, it follows these two different things. And first he's talking about the outward appearance and then the motive behind it. So the selfish ambition is that outward action. It's basically saying that if you want to destroy unity, become self-centered, become self-absorbed. Show up to a small group, show up to a worship service and say... What am I gonna get out of this? Show up to church and say, I like this, I don't like that. You wanna ruin the unity of a church? You wanna dismantle what God can do through it? You show up and you say, I don't like what that guy's wearing. I don't like the temperature of this place. I don't like that he's in Philippians. Why aren't we in a shorter book like Philemon? This will take forever. On and on and on. I get your emails, I get your notes. That dismantles unity. It dismantles all that God longs for you to experience, but he says actually there is a there's a root behind all of that selfishness. There's a root and a motive behind showing up and just looking how other people can make your life better. And it's this this word that in this translation, the NRSV, which is our Pew Bible, doesn't come close to translating the word in the Greek. Uh, The Greek is kenodoxia. Let me hear you say kenodoxia. Kenodoxia. Kenosis is to be emptied. Doxia is glory. I don't often read the King James. Any of you carry the King James with you? In this case, it is a great translation of that word kenodoxia. It's the word vainglory, empty glory. You see the word glory, actually all that glory means is weightiness, significance, matter, heaviness. The more glorious something is, the more it matters. The more glorious something is, the more important it is. We long to be important. As humans, we long to be noticed. We want to matter. I want to have significance. And so often as we go throughout life, at the very core behind our actions is an underlying motive where we just want to be enough. And apart from God, we go throughout life selfish because we want to have glory. We're self-centered and we use other people and we make ourselves the center of the universe of which everyone else has to revolve around because at the end of the day we just want somebody to look at us and say, I see you, I love you, you matter to me, you're enough. And apart from God, when we are searching to give ourselves glory, to give ourselves significance, to give ourselves meaning, to give ourselves a sense of heaviness and weight and mattering in this world, when we try to do that, and when that's the aim, then the outward display is selfish ambition. And right now, social media is just fuel on the fire. And tell me, it does not feel good. It does. It feels good for me. How good does it feel when somebody likes a post? When you have a new follower. Even that phrase that we have followers, as if we are the center of the universe. And if you're on LinkedIn or Snapchat or, 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 or Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, that we, we, it's actually, it is feeding into this vainglory this empty sense of mattering and we wanna surround ourselves and often we go through other people's lives and we enter into relationships with other people just as tourists. Trying to get for ourselves memories, getting for ourselves experiences, getting for ourselves and we're so, we're so mature about it, we're so, we're so kind of subtle about it that, that we actually think that we're entering into a relationship for them but actually it's, it's, it's for us. And apart from God, this, this, this way of life leads to emptiness. And you don't have to be a Christian in order to understand this. The author of Fast Company article noticed that. That these people who get all these things, actually by the end of it, they actually end up empty. That there's still something missing. They haven't discovered, as St. Augustine says, that my, my heart is restless until it finds its rest in you, O oh God. So what's the antidote to that? What is this way of Jesus that the Apostle ta- Paul talks about? Open back up Philippians two. He said, "Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory of conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves." Let's pause right there. Can't skip over this. The word humility in the first century was a word that was only used to describe slaves. It was a negative word. The word humility actually was not a positive word at all, but From God's point of view, God flips it, uses that word 270 times in Scripture, and in every single case, the word humility is a positive term. And the Apostle Paul is saying, in humility, consider others as better than yourselves. Now, don't mistake meekness as weakness, don't mistake humility as somebody who is absolutely weak. Because it actually, it takes tremendous strength, it takes tremendous confidence, it takes tremendous boldness to have this kind of humility. I mean, it it takes a lot of security to actually walk into a room and say, you know what? I'm not gonna spend the whole time talking. Actually, I wanna learn from you. You've got something in your life that that I don't have, and I'm gonna ask questions, I'm gonna be curious, I'm gonna be inquisitive takes tremendous strength to be humble, but we can't naturally do that, so how do we do it? Verse 4, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. This summer as we, and I'm coming back out of this verse for a moment, this summer as we change our schedule from a worshiping and go culture, you know we do that sometimes, drive through church, you worship and go, in and out, come late, leave early. 11.30 11.30 service, get up by 11.58, it's time to go, it's time to go, 11.58, uh, to go from a worship and go culture to a worship and grow culture, but of course you can grow in a worship service, but we're inviting you into something so much more than in between the two morning services at the 10 o'clock hour, that you would, for this crowd, that you would show up early, that you would spend time in multi-generational opportunities with those that attend the 830 service, that you would serve, that you would go to a class. And I can't even call it a class where we're creating it. It's so much more than that. But, but the point is, the Apostle Paul is saying, don't just show up to that grow hour and say, what's in it for me? Don't just show up to that grow hour and say, well, I'm gonna look out to my own interests. What looks interesting? No, he says, look, look out to each other's interests and my longing, my prayer, is that grow, the only way we, d- we would describe grow, that time in between our morning worship services would be this, that we would say, that's where I get to show up, and while I'm growing, I get to help other people grow. And how subtle that is, but how dramatic a different outcome that takes us down. The Apostle Paul goes on, verse five, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, and I love this, he doesn't say let the same behavior be, He doesn't just say, I want you to imitate Jesus. You know, it's very rare when we get to somebody's motives. It's very rare we can actually uncover someone's mind, their thoughts. You know, as we go throughout life, we often wonder, what are they thinking right now? Why'd they do that? What was their motive? And if they don't share with us what it is, we can often assume what they're thinking, assume what their motives are. The Apostle Paul gets right to the heart of it here, and he says, I want you, I'm gonna reveal to you the innermost thoughts of Jesus. Not that you would just admire it, but that you would have the same mind, that you would have the same motives, that the same root cause of your actions would be this. And right when he gets into verse six, he begins to quote someone else. Scholars across the board, whether they're conservative or liberal, say that the Apostle Paul is quoting something here. Which is remarkable because Philippians was written only 20 years after the the death of Jesus. This is early, early church. I mean early church. And Paul is quoting something that was even earlier than what he's writing here. And many people believe that this is the first Christian worship song. This is the first hymn, the first creed. At the Genesis, at the very beginning, at the catalyst of the way of Jesus Christ, as people begin to follow Jesus, perhaps were they singing this? They knew it, they had it memorized. And right here is where we get to the Mariana Trench and the Mount Everest, the, the very core, the very heart of all of eternity. And he says this about Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, I want you to underline form. I want you to circle it, I want you to put a star next to it. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, grab a red one. If you don't have a Bible in front of you in the pew, look around, ask somebody around you. Get a Bible in your lap, people. Circle that word, I see you. You're like, oh, he's serious about that. Yes, please, circle, take it. Take it home with you. If you already have a Bible, leave it for somebody else to see that circled. The word form does not mean just the outward appearance. There's a different Greek word for that. It's the word schema. It's a completely different Greek word. I tried memorizing it. It's like impossible to pronounce, and I don't want to butcher it here. He says, though, who is in the very, and it basically means he was in the very essence of God. Now, this is theology 101. This is theology 301. This is the most basic thing that you've got to know about Jesus and the most advanced thing at the same time. You are ready for it. Here's what he's saying. He's saying. Jesus is not just a teacher. He's not just some great guy. He's not just a miracle worker. Uh, He wasn't some special person that was like a demigod where a God up there gave part of his power to Jesus. No, he was in the very essence God. Jesus is all-knowing, all-powerful, eternal, uncreated, perfect love, perfect peace, perfect joy. And you can't describe Jesus as being different from the Father. They're one and the same. In fact, we describe this mysterious community of oneness as as the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. They've eternally coexisted, neither of which has been created. And so Jesus is eternal. He's all-powerful. Jesus was the one that spoke and all things came into existence. You can read about that in John chapter one. You can read in Colossians one that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you wanna look at God, look at Jesus. Hebrews one says this, that Jesus is the exact radiance of God's glory. That Jesus has the ability to hold all things together, the cosmos, your heart beating, Your lung capacity, he holds all of it together by the power of his word. Jesus is God in the flesh. And the early church put their lives on that. And some of you, I know, because in a group this big and people watch online, you might say, well, okay, that's your opinion. No, that's what scripture says about Jesus. He is not worth following if you don't believe that he is in the very essence God. It's not worth following him every day unless he's God. It's not worth following Jesus everywhere unless he's God. It's not worth following him with everyone unless he's God. He is God. And when you begin to start with that premise, that angels are praising Jesus for all of eternity, it makes it all that much more significant to see what happens next. Though he was in the very essence of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited all his power, all his privilege, all his might, all his access, all the things under his control. He didn't say, I'm not going to use that to exploit it for myself. We need more people in power right now to live like Jesus because people are taking their power, their privilege, their might, their access, their control, and they're exploiting others or the situation. They're grasping at these things and actually that's the way of success. They're gonna find themselves empty in this completely opposite way. We see Jesus, he pours out himself. This is phenomenal, it says this in verse seven. But emptied himself. Some translations say that he poured out himself. Taking the form, It's it's the same word. Taking the essence of a slave. Being born, in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Let's just pause right there. The fact that we can say on one hand that Jesus is 100% God, not 99.9% God, 100% God. You can also say at the very same time that Jesus is 100% human. He's not 99.9% human, just .1% God. You can't slice it down the middle. He is the God man. God in the flesh. And he pours himself, an eternal God pours himself into finite creation. He's born as a baby. Think about that transition from the glories of heaven to a stable, crying. Has to be cleaned and changed. Has to learn how to eat and talk and walk. Jesus takes his power and his privilege and he pours it out for the sake of others, so much so that I'm getting fired up here. (laughs) Being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross, That he goes from the highest of heights and he goes to the Mariana Trench of spiritual separation from God. And he chooses that. And the great irony of the resume of Jesus is that he had everything and he gave it all away. Humanity, apart from God, we think that we have everything, but we actually know we don't. So actually we have nothing, and we actually want everything, and we end up empty. And so Jesus, with everything, he pours his life out. I've got to ask you a question. So Jesus, yes, fully God, fully human. This will bend your mind. How did Jesus perform miracles? How did he raise Lazarus from the grave? How did he multiply fish and loaves to feed 5,000? Was he leaning on his divinity? Or was it in his humanness? What do you think? Let's get a little interactive. How many of you think? You're like, oh, don't set me up for this, Drew. (laughs) Don't set me up for this. How many of you say he completely leaned on his divinity? to do those miracles. Okay, now how many of you uh, completely leaned on his humanness? Okay, now how many of you are like, I'm not gonna be tricked by you, boy. Yeah, okay, I see those hands. There you go, Blake, that's good, honesty. Well, let's see, what, is, what does Scripture say? It's not my opinion, it's not your opinion. What does Scripture say? Open those Bibles back up, Acts 10, verse 38. Mind-boggling, mind-blowing. Can we just go to four o'clock? This is just too much. Okay. Let's <laughs> stick around afterwards. Uh, Acts 10, 38. What does Scripture say? This is in the middle of a sermon, one of the first sermons of the early church. Acts 10, verse 38. This is the message. This is the gospel. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. Please get out of your mind that Jesus walked this earth with an easy life because he just leaned on his divinity, that he did miracles with just his divinity. No, in his complete humanness, empowered by the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that God gives you through faith and trust in him, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave lives in you He was the perfect human, he lived the perfect way. Why? Because everything he did was relying on God. He says, I have come to do the will of the Father. This isn't my glory, it's not my power, I'm not gonna exploit it. He could have easily done that. That, that, That's what the temptations were all about. Where Satan looks at him and says, if you are the son of God, goes right after his identity, then do this. Turn these stones into bread. Cast yourself off the high place and the angels will catch you. Just bow down and do all these things and Jesus, rest in the truth of God's word, walked perfectly as a human. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. Constantly saying, I have come to do the will of the Father. I'm living for him. I'm, I'm emptying all of my power, but I'm resting on God's power that he gives me. And here's the great truth. What does Jesus say about you? He gives you his spirit. He says, I tell you this, with the power of the Holy Spirit, you will do even greater things. Oh, you're not God. I'm not God. Some of you might think yourselves, all right, there's been moments where I I act like I am completely in control or thinking that I know best. You're not God. I'm not God. There's only one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. But here's the truth. You have the Holy Spirit. And so all of a sudden... When you, with empty hands of faith, say, God, I need you, I'm desperate from you, apart from you, I actually have no security, I'm actually an insecure person, and I put on a front that I've got it all together, but I'm actually insecure, And when you receive through faith the gift of his love, actually in that moment you pick up security. And God looks at you and says, I'm going to give you everything, I'm giving you a name, I'm giving you a purpose, I'm giving you an inheritance that can't be touched. No matter what people say to you, even if this happens or that happens or you don't get that job or that person rejects you, you have a security that can't be shaken. But even more than that, I'm giving you a power, God says. It's the power of the Holy Spirit to walk with boldness in this world. That through that power, as a side note, that you can take your power, your privilege, your access, all of your resources, not to exploit other people, but to pour yourself out, to empty yourself out on the sake of others. Now let me just, as an aside, just invite you into my own journey right now. I'm discovering this concept of privilege right now. It's a hot topic word, I never had heard it before in my life. And I'm realizing that because I am white, because I am male, because I was born in the United States, because I have a college degree, all these things, I have a certain privilege, which I had no idea what that was all about. And when I first heard that, I'm like, no, I don't have privilege. Are you kidding me? I struggled with this, and I missed this opportunity. No, no, no. I'm beginning to realize, actually, what God has given me, that I haven't given myself, that kind of the uniqueness of where I was born, which I couldn't choose, that all these things lead me to this place where I'm now saying, okay, I now have to realize the power, the privilege, the access, my abilities... And I need to use that and not be paralyzed. I had to go through that journey. When I first heard about privilege and I first rejected it, and then all of a sudden I'm like, oh my gosh, white privilege, and there was this guilt, and all of a sudden I got paralyzed. And then I came back to God's Word. You have to come back to God's Word. What does God's Word say? You take your power, like Jesus, you take your privilege, you take all of that, and you pour it out for the sake of others. You love those on the margins of society. You don't do these things just for your glory. You do it so that you can love people, to care for people, to speak out against injustice, on and on and on and on. And so I'm in this journey now saying, okay, God, I need you, because this is mind-boggling. This is overwhelming. This is crushing. Every single one of you, you have privilege. You have power. You have breath in your lungs. You have control of your faculties most of the time. And God says, I want you to use all the things that you've either accumulated yourself or I've given you all those things and I want you to use it for the sake of blessing others, serving others, giving to others, that you would empty out your time, you would empty out your wallet, you would empty out your skills, all of it to lift other people up. Paul says, have the same mind as Jesus who, gosh, he he poured himself out all the way to the point of death. But then what happened? It goes on. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus had all things and he says, I'm gonna give it all away and as a result, we will spend all of eternity worshiping and praising and lifting up the name of Jesus higher than any other name. And when the Apostle Paul says, have the same mind as Jesus, he's saying this. You want to get your life? Lose it. You want security? Realize how insecure you are. And hold on to God. Receive what he's given you. You want joy and happiness and peace and purpose? Don't go running after those things. Follow Jesus. And like frequent flyer miles, you accumulate it on the way. So there's this this amazing truth that is so countercultural. That it's just it's it's so mind-boggling. That I feel like I can't even do it justice. I even went longer. I went don't even look at the clock right now. <laughs> We're flying over the Grand Canyon, in a sense. And there's so much to explore. We've got to get out of the plane, we've got to spend years, we've got to, we've got to set up camp, we've got to explore the depth and the riches of just these verses. So if you hear anything, maybe this would be your practical application. Would you go home, I'm going to ask you, before your, your head hits the pillow tonight, would you open up the Bible that you own or that you're taking today, it's not yours, Philippians 2, just read Philippians 2, 6 through 11. And open it up and, and, and pray. Maybe it's the first time you'll you're ever praying in your life. And pray and just say, God, show me how I've been living. And how it doesn't line up with this. And God, would you through your spirit, would you would you change the way that I live? Would you change the way that I love? Would you change the way that I see my circumstances? Would you would you change the way that I I leverage my gifts and my privilege and my power. That's powerful when you open up God's word and you pray to God. This is alive. It's more alive than I am. It's been around much longer than I've been. So don't miss this opportunity today to open it up, Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Pray that prayer. God, show me. Show me your way to live, to love. Let's pray. Loving God, I knew it would happen. Attempted to climb Mount Everest and getting stuck at base camp. Wanted to plumb the depths of the Mariana Trench but barely getting below the surface. So God, I pray that your spirit would be our travel guide. Would take us on a journey deeper and higher into your love the way that you lived. And God, what do we leave here convinced, not by me, but convinced because of your spirit that there's no other way than the way of Jesus. God, we thank you for your love, and it's in your name we pray, and we say together, amen. amen. amen.